G'day and welcome to the Fly Fisher Podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fly Fishers podcast. Uh, Ross has recently returned from a trip to Cocos Keeling Islands, so we thought we'd sit down with him today and find out about his trip, the fishing at Cocos, where it is, and uh, maybe how to best plan a trip to this tropical paradise. Roscoe, you have been absolutely peaking since you've been back, mate. Yeah, it's been a trip of a lifetime for sure. It's probably been one of the best holidays slash trips slash things I've ever done. It's incredible. I loved every minute of it. Man, I mean, just some of those photos and and in chatting to you and overhearing the four million conversations you've had (laughs) since you've been back, it sounds like it was pretty epic. It was, mate. And I think on the last day I said, I can't wait to get back to work and just talk to everyone's ear off about this trip because it's been amazing. (laughs) That's very true. We've uh, we've struggled to shut him up, um, but yeah, look, there's uh, we've got three of us sitting down here uh, this afternoon. Maxie, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, um, and uh, Roscoe and myself, Andrew Fuller. Peter, unfortunately, um, couldn't be with us today. I think he's got I don't know some an appointment maybe with yeah. Chelsea. Maybe I think so. something. <laughs> yeah, soft, soft top appointment with the roof down. Uh, so, yeah, we've managed to hit the record button. I think we're doing a pretty good job, but um, don't be surprised if uh, the, the finish is, uh, is not as clean and as clear as uh, it normally is with Peter's expert hands behind the, the DJ. Yeah, that's it. Um, but, yeah, Roscoe, you know, this, this uh, Cocos Keeling Islands, where, where is it, man? Yeah, that's it. So it's technically it's owned by Australia um, and it's owned by WA, uh, but it's in between Singapore and Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean. Right. So a long way away and it's not an easy place to get to. Um, it is classed as international. Uh, it's a full-blown international flight from Perth. Uh, so for us here in Melbourne, it was a flight from Melbourne to Perth. Um, and then you have to go from the domestic terminal into the in, uh, domestic, uh, sorry, from domestic to international go through passport control, go through security uh, and then sit an international departure gate, uh, which can be a little bit confusing um, uh, for some people. Um, So you've got to make sure that you do uh, change terminals uh, as a big tip from Perth. That is a good tip. Um, Yeah, I reckon the the interesting thing to me is you look at Cocos on a map and you'd almost swear that it's not part of Australia because it's a lot closer to some other countries than it is It is. I think it's 2,500 Ks roughly from Perth and it's like 1,000 Ks from Jakarta or something like that. Right. Um, We've got another island out there, though, that's often uh, miss... I guess, you know, people think it's Christmas Island I'm talking yep. about. There's two Christmas Islands. There's the Australian one that's, you know, famous because of its detention centre and then there's mm. the, the one in the uh, in the Pacific that's obviously got very good bonefish fishing that we used to all go to pre-COVID, back when Fiji Airways were getting us in there, um, which really has started, well, that's pushed us into looking to some other 
destinations like Cocos. Yeah, absolutely. And being that it is technically owned by Australia, it is easier to get to. You still have to fill out a customs form, but no visas or anything like that yep. to get in there. Um, but you have to fly to Christmas Island before you can get to Cocos. So the flight does a bit of a loop. Uh, so it leaves Perth, uh, and then sometimes, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, it stops in Exmouth for refuelling. You can't get on or off the plane there. Um, and then it goes to uh, Christmas where you'd have to get off and some people get off there, some people get on there and then it goes from Christmas to Cocos and then from Cocos back to Perth. So seating room is at a premium, isn't it? It is. I wouldn't say that the plane was completely chockers, but they do cap the amount of people on both islands. So flight, this is what I've heard, so that flights will get, even though this, the plane looks half empty, it's technically full because the, the, the island is capped at 160 people. Right. Roughly, that's what, what, what I've heard. And I did speak to one of the guys in the know on the island that yeah said about the same thing. Yeah, yeah. One of the, the biggest difficulties we, we've noticed just in booking uh, people into this, this trip on Cocos is, yeah, the flights. Like, just there's not many seats on the plane. So if you do ever plan a trip to Cocos, just make sure you, 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 you months and months Give and months Give yourself at least six months, yeah. So that you can get a seat on that plane because they're, um, they're, they're pretty hard to get. So... Um, yeah, so that yeah, that's that's where it is, and that's how to get to Cocos. Cool. Um, I did actually sit down with uh, the head guide, um, Cooper Watson, and he spoke a bit in detail about the history of the island. So uh, maybe we'll just cut to him now. What do you reckon? Sounds good. Over to you, Cooper. Hey, Coop. Thanks for uh, joining us. We've had a, a night at the Cocos Club and a few beers in our bellies. But um, why Cocos, mate? Why come here? Why come fish here? Well, mate, it probably started um, last year I came out here on sort of a holiday and spent eight weeks here and fished quite a bit and thought the place had um, a lot of potential and I was lucky enough to meet Nick over here then and he sort of, in a fleeting conversation at the pub, offered me a job and sort of has come to fruition and, yeah, now I'm sort of here exploring that potential and really uncovering what it actually has to offer. Yeah, awesome. I guess um, Nick's been you know, kind enough to give um, you a bit of a run as a guide and obviously you're killing it out here and, and getting clients on to fish. Um, you had a bit of a... You lived here for a while, didn't you? How long were you lived here before you started guiding? Yeah, so I did a couple of months here last year. My um, partner at the time was teaching at school here, which was really cool. Got to sort of learn a bit about the island and how things work here, which was um, a good insight into things um, as like life on the island. Obviously, you didn't always just fishing. There's a yep. bit more to it. So it was good to get that sort of cultural understanding and that sort of thing before I actually came over here for work. I feel like that holds me in good stead now. So um, talk a bit about the demographic of, of Cocos, who lives here and how many islands and, and what the makeup of it is. Yeah, so there's quite a few islands. There's, I think there's over 20 islands in the actual atoll itself and um, West Island and Home Island, the two that are inhabited. So on West Island, you've got about 120 um, Australian expats, as you'd call it, so people that are working basically all government work yeah. Um, on the island and then on home island you've got between five and six hundred um, Cocos Malays which is essentially the indigenous community to the islands that have been here for I think 300 or so years. Guys so, have been looking after us with our lunches and dinners yeah. and had some beautiful food haven't we? Yeah the catering um, really is probably a highlight for me and for yourself obviously as well um, and for like clients coming from inner city and places like that to come out here and actually really experience the authentic cuisine and stuff like 
you pull up on the flats and you've got like this delicious rice and curry chicken curry puffs and there's and bones swimming past yeah all the good yeah. stuff it's it's a very exciting and um unique way to eat your lunch i guess yeah it's not it is a traditional lunch break it's certainly um, a paradise i guess and um obviously the island is owned by australia but it's kind of not like it's an international flight there's customs forms you got to fill out you got to show your passport yeah that's right um yeah, well, that's one thing, I guess, for people who are coming out here. It's really handy to have a passport. You don't need it. Um, but obviously, if the plane can't land for some reason here at Christmas, it's getting um, sent to Jakarta. So you're landing virtually in another country. So it's good to have your passport. Um, yeah, like you go through customs. Um, they don't let you take 150 mils of water. It's like as if you're flying overseas. Yeah, it's a full-blown international Yeah, flight. you feel like your little like customs card and like you say oh i've gone from australia to australia and i'm spending my time in australia when, <laughs> before i return back in australia it's kind of like yeah it's it's confusing i must yeah, admit it's a weird one it is um but um so what's on the island there's not a lot here um coconuts it, yeah there's far out there's enough <laughs> coconut trees to i've never seen so many yeah coconuts well i guess life. the history of the island was um it was a coconut plantation like when the clooney's ross family sort of established a community out here they um developed a coconut plantation and that's sort of how they sustained a living so obviously you've got the remnants of that there's bits of huts and um other history around the place but yeah predominantly just coconut trees and then you've got the tarmac obviously on west island and your or semi-international airport and then you've got, I don't know, it would be like 120 homes, and most of them were established during the Second World War. A lot of that's houses that were built um, to like house workers and like armymen during the war. Um, so that all still stands pretty well. Like they built things pretty, pretty tough back then. Yeah. Um, and then obviously on Home Island, there's like just a community essentially. It's like a big town. Um, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's not Australia no, over there, like is it? Generations um, living with each other, like you've got the grandparents, like the sons, the daughters, everything sort of in the one like little community. It's really tight knit. Um, they're fairly, um, indi- um, not indigenous, fairly religious um, community. Like a lot of them are Muslim, um, which is cool. So they have like their prayer times during the day and that sort of thing. They um, obviously donate pork and stuff like that. So it's quite unique in that sense. Like it's something you don't really get exposed to on mainland Australia, but when you come out here, yeah. um, it's quite prominent. Obviously, um, at the lodge here, we're lucky enough to have um, a couple of four-wheel drives and, and boats, um, but if you weren't to have that, how, how, do you, how do people get around the islands? Um, so on Home Island, it's quite interesting, actually, because they don't have a fuel um, depot on Home Island, so it's sort of jerry cans, and that's all they can sort of fill up with. So they've got quad bikes and, like, your Polaris buggies and that sort of thing, but obviously on Home Island, on West Island, sorry, there's just normal cars. It's yep. pretty much um, as close to living in Australia as you can get. I guess it's probably more civilised than Bali um, in terms of, like, transport. We've got a public transport. There's a bus that gets around on this yeah. island. 50 cents a trip, isn't it? Yeah, it's something ridiculous. And, and then the ferry ride. There's $2 like a, a ferry. Yeah, a big ferry that takes you across the other islands certain days and at times. And that's, yeah, $2 is something ridiculous as well. A pretty famous island here that I've heard people talk a bit about is Direction Island. What do you know about Direction Island? Yeah, so Direction Island, I think it was a couple of years ago, won um, or was in the running. I'm not sure if it won, um, but it was, yeah, one of the best islands in the world, so to speak. Um, They actually had to install Wi-Fi on the island, believe it or not, because you couldn't be in the running for best island without wireless internet. So, yeah, you don't get bugger or phone service anywhere, but then you there's nothing, is there? Nah, nothing. There's no cellular here, so... Things like bank transfers and that where you need to receive a secure code can be 
quite difficult because you can't. There's no SMS. Yep. So there's a couple of like um, hoops you got to jump through living out here um, that you don't expect. Um, but yeah, it's it's fairly primitive and it's good. I think like you only get internet when you're home. So when you're out on the boat, you're like you're, you're generally in touch with just your clients and the nature, like the wildlife, which is really good. Um, it's a change. Like, obviously on the mainland, you've constantly got dinks and beeps, that sort of thing. There's one thing that the island's not sure of, and that's alcohol. Hey. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Like a lettuce can cost you eighteen dollars, but a bottle of Smirnoff, like a liter of vodka, also cost you eighteen dollars. Yeah, there's no tax on alcohol. Yeah, duty free. Yeah. Sounds yeah, cigarettes. So it's, it's quite backwards in that sense. But it is, and and the bar here is incredibly well stocked. It is. Yeah, they've got an arsenal of um, liquor, which is good. But you um, can't buy a peach or an apple. You know? No, that's right. I don't think I've eaten fresh fruit in seven weeks now. Occasionally, you have like tin peaches and stuff, which are nice, but obviously there's only so much of that you can eat. Yeah, if you want a coconut, uh, there's plenty of them. Oh yeah, there's plenty of them. You just got to work out how to open the, the things up. It's not the easiest of tasks, but yeah, once you get there, having a nice sharp knife is a big bonus. Yeah, that's it. Any um, other bits and pieces you want to talk about about the island or about um, the destination itself? Um, probably just like it is very remote. Um, so like to remember, if you do come out, you just like pack everything you think you could need so like if you're waiting a lot bring stuff yeah. blisters bring three bees cream like it's not easy to get stuff here if you like like certain music bars that sort of thing then just bring them with you yeah um but yeah other than that like it's such an untapped place like it we, is we spent like an afternoon on a ledge just last week and had nine g's like 15 to 20 kilo g's just cruise past your feet it's like we didn't catch any of them all there, but just to see those fish in such healthy numbers. And the fish here, like, in Exmouth, what would be a 15-kilo fish here is a 20-kilo fish. They're just so fat. They're so healthy. There's so much food for them. It's just, like, bait everywhere. It's a really, really cool place. And it's probably one of the most beautiful places I think I've ever fished as well. Yeah, it's just it's so picturesque, and it's so untouched. Yeah. Um, you will notice there is a lot of plastic wash up on the beaches, and I think that's quite um, uh, uh, yeah. similar to most remote Australian places. I feel places. like I've seen a lot more plastic in places like the Cape. Um, yeah. Uh, but, and there are people here that clean the beach, but yeah, of course, you, you always get a lot of rubbish in those yeah. remote places. Which can be quite sobering when you're looking at essentially the one of the nicest beaches in the world and there's plastic everywhere, but yeah. I guess you sort of have to look past that and do your best to make sure you don't leave a footprint and like clean up as best you can what what you have so like pick up your line take all your rubbish home with you and pick up some other stuff while you're out there i think it's pretty unique that the type of equipment on offer here um uh, you know there's there's no boats like this anywhere on the island no nah, that's it like, i think there's only three mavericks um in australia and one of them here and yeah in one of them's in cocos which is which is pretty incredible in itself to be honest like you've got a boat that floats in essentially a tin can of water with a 70 ami on the back brand new perfect yeah. flats boat um platforms you can see everything it's just it's such a pleasure to be able to operate this vessel and obviously then there's the sportsman so if you want to go out outside and chase bigger things like your pelagics and that sort of stuff there's always that option but yeah i've really found sort of um myself on this on the maverick and like i really want to just go back to the mainland of Ireland myself oh, it's a wicked boat it's such an um, epic craft i've definitely got boat envy myself yeah um so tuesday to tuesday are the charters yep yeah, so you fly in Tuesday, you land um, just before sort of dinner, you get some pizzas when you get here, and then, yeah, that following Tuesday, you sort of fish up till lunchtime, one o'clock, pack your bags, and then head down to the airport, have a couple of beers, yep. yeah, and jump on your plane. What's kind of the daily itinerary? 
So generally, depending on tides, um, essentially it's eight till four, but obviously myself and Connor are more than happy to fish for longer than that. Like we were fishing for ourselves, we'd be fishing longer than that. So we sort of really try to get the clients out um, nice and early and then come back a bit later if we can. Obviously, if the fish are biting, we want to spend as much time out there as we can. Yeah, them. and then we've come back and we've all grabbed rods and we've, we've catched right. surfing bones most nights. Yeah, that's it. Um, so, yeah, like you've sort of, you get up in the morning, you have some breakfast. We've got sort of continental breakfast occasionally. We'll do bacon and eggs if that's um, what you feel like having. Obviously, like when it's 28 degrees and humid, you don't always feel like a nice heavy breakfast. Um, something light can be yeah. um, a bit nicer for you down the water. But then, yeah, you got your lunches and all that packed. So you jump on the boat and head out and then one o'clock-ish you have some lunch and then, yeah, keep fishing through to sort of four and then make your way back to the marina. And what's the cost of a week here? So it's five five um, Australian dollars All inclusive. for the week. Yeah, or if you want to come as a solo angler, it's $8,500, um, which means you've got your own guide, your own vessel, your own bedroom. Um, bloody, bloody good deal. Yeah, so like if you if people are like have a query about sharing guides or sharing a room, then so it's not really that much more. And it's still a fair bit more expensive, um, a fair bit cheaper than other like trips you can do yep. for like the same sort of fishery. Is... Obviously, full blown international flight from Perth. So obviously, depending on where you're coming from, I can talk for myself. Um, anywhere from kind of seventeen hundred to to two thousand ish for flights. Um, do you know what roughly they are from from Perth? So I think I paid fifteen hundred. Um, for my flights, obviously there's sort of three price um, waves for the flight. You can get it for five forty nine, um, seven fifty, or nine forty nine. I think so. There's like obviously your um, flexi, uh, your early bird, and then your like your sort of your later booking. But it's quite unique in the sense that they'll close flights when they're still available at times. So booking in advance um, your flights and your trip. So if you book a trip or if you pay a deposit, book your flights straight away because they do close them. Obviously, there's only yep. two flights here a week, and that's a ring route between here and Christmas. So you've got 5,000 people on Christmas, and so 1,000 people here. Whether Even if 10% of that population moves around every three or four weeks, that's still a lot of people on planes. Yeah, it is, it is a weird one, actually. You know, you, you go Perth. Um, sometimes they sometimes they refuel up yeah, north in so WA. Yeah, so if you fly um, direct to Cocos, they fill up in Learmont, which is Exmouth. Yep. Um, but yeah, if you fly through Christmas, they take you straight to Christmas, fill up there, come to Cocos, yep. go to Learmont, and then down to Perth, or yep. straight to Perth, depending on how they're going for fuel and weight and then the plane. Yeah, cool. All right, well, thanks for your time. I think we covered uh, yeah, everything about no the island and the trip, and um, uh, hopefully I'll get back here as soon as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good, mate. Chat to you soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Coop. Thanks for sitting down with us there and uh, and chatting about the island's history. Pretty fascinating. It is, isn't it? You know, like it, it, you, you know, I guess it's a part of Australia, and it's uh, you know, no doubt it was a pretty strategic, you know, stronghold for uh, military operations back in the day as well. So yeah, I think so. Quite a fascinating place, you know. And uh, no, that that's that's awesome to, to learn all that about. Um, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Um, the main reason you go there, right? We talk about the fish. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, so, I mean, probably the the, the poster species of, of all these flats fishing destinations are the, you know, the, I guess the big three. You've got your bonefish, your permit, and if you're in the Caribbean side, it's going to be tarpon. Uh, but if you're on uh, the Cocos side, it's going to be giant trevally. That's and it, that's the grand slam. Cocos ticks all those boxes. It does. It? Um that was the three that we were 
we heavily concentrated on. Um, but there are triggerfish there, bumphead parrotfish. Um, and if you into the blue water, there's dogtooth tuna, yellowtail tuna or yellowfin tuna, um, wahoo and sail and marlin there. Amazing. Uh, and all of those blue water species were uh, found and most of them were hooked when I was there by, by Nick, the, uh, the lodge owner, lodge manager. It sounds, to, you know, you, you've been talking a bit and, and I read your, your article that you published at flystream.com there, Roscoe. Um, just talk us through, for those that haven't read the article, talk us through day one for you, the first morning. Yeah, so the first morning, um, so I arrived there a week late. So the clients that I was meant to be with, uh, some of them had already left, but uh, Dizzy, a good friend of the fly fisher, had stayed on. Uh, and so they'd just come off the back of a week of heavy fishing. So it was like, great, Ross is fresh off the plane. He's just got here. Let's see what he can do, you know. Let's let's guide him for the morning. Let's get him onto some fish. Um, so day one was... Um, uh, got up quite early, had some breakfast. The car was completely loaded by about seven o'clock, but we couldn't really go anywhere until our lunch for the day had got delivered. So we went down to the main uh, jetty where the ferry comes in. Uh, so the first ferry is at 7.30 a.m. Um, and we picked up our food. And walking along the jetty to get to the boat, we saw two absolute ginormous GTs just cruising the jetty. And I'm like, can I have a crack at these? And they were like, yeah, sure, if you want. So I ran back to the boat, uh, grabbed the rod out of the gunnel, first cast, hooked up to a probably a, a six to eight kilo GT, um, managed to get that to uh, to the bank, which was great. Um, absolutely no sharks or nothing in sight. It was a, was a, was a good fight. Second cast, uh, after a bit of commotion, maybe a bit of sharks had, uh, had come in and, and heard what had been going on. Second cast in exactly the same spot, uh, hooked a bluefin, Trevally. Uh, had to fight this one a little bit quicker than I would have liked due to didn't want to get lost to sharks and um, yeah unfortunately pulled a little bit too hard high stick the rod and, and managed to break the Helios 9 uh, on the second cast so you haven't even boarded the boat yet and no. you've, uh, you've landed two Trevally two and busted a fly rod yeah and busted a fly rod and I've probably been fishing all of about 15 minutes at this point um <laughs> But yeah, the weather was beautiful, clear blue, sunny skies, about 25 degrees and slightly humid, so the temperature was was bliss. Um, anyway, loaded up the esky on the boat with the lunches for the day, which uh, consisted of some curry, rice, curry puffs for a snack, uh, and the most amazing fresh uh, donuts and, and sponge cakes. It was unbelievable. Uh, anyway, it's a short drive from the ferry further north uh, to uh, just an access to the beach, just a sand ramp. It's not, you wouldn't call it a boat ramp by anyone's standards. Um, and as we're backing the boat in, I think I, I turned to one of the guides and I said, oh, did you ever see, you know, surfing bones? And he goes, oh, look just there. So I look out the window and about 30 metres kind of in front of me down the beach, there's a pair of bones just surfing, tail sticking out the water. And I go, can I have a crack at them? And he goes, well, yeah, if you want. It was like it was nothing, you know. It was like this is just something we see when we launch the boat. So I grabbed the eight weight this time, not the 10 or the nine, which I broke. Um, had one cast. 
the tide wasn't completely high, so I had quite a lot of beach to stand on, and most of my fly line, pretty much all the fly line was on the sand and a little bit of leader on the beach. I mean, my fly probably landed four to six inches into the water. That's that's how close these fish were. They, they sacrificed themselves. They come right up and beach themselves. What the, the tailing one just turned on my fly, ate it straight away, and, yeah, I'll – never that my first bonefish you know almost took me straight to the backing it was quite a small one and and yeah that was a bonefish done so three fish and three casts unbelievable mate that's uh and was it at this point that you start thinking grand slam or no i didn't even think about it the the guides at this point the guides were excited they're like right well ross can clearly cast he can clearly fight a fish uh well he did break a rod so he's not that great but uh um (laughs) he might be a bit heavy-handed yeah he's a bit heavy-handed let's just see maybe you know if we put him in front of a permit maybe um he can get the grand slam so i think um yeah, the um, head guide, uh, Cooper, he was uh, the guy we just listened to. He was like, Ross, I've got to get you a Grand Slam. I want you to be my first client that gets the Grand Slam. Um, so he was kind of more excited about it than I was at that time. And then I thought, holy shit, this could actually be a thing, you know. That'd be awesome if I managed to do yeah, it. You've still got a whole day ahead of you. Well, that's it. To catch one fish. Yeah, we're talking, it was probably about 7.45 at this point, <laughs> maybe maybe 8 o'clock pushing it. So anyway, we all loaded into the brand new Mavericks GIF um, shot across right across the lagoon so from one side as far as the eye could see right across the other side to another island um absolutely pristine over there um for such a remote place uh, hardly saw any plastic on some of these islands um sea shepherd are there cleaning um which is incredible but yeah it really did feel pretty wild over there and um i think the first fish we saw was was a perm that i had a shot at uh fish turned on my fly pretty much mouthed my fly maybe there was a little bit of slack in the system but a bit of user error on my part uh and yeah just never connected to that first permit um but you know we're probably an hour and a half into the day and then uh that was the first fish that didn't connect second fish was very typical permit like um cast probably three foot in front of it and waited for this permit to swim past my fly it intercepted my fly perfectly and didn't even acknowledge its existence uh and then as i picked that fly up the fish was no longer same anyway second one was swimming towards us parallel third one. sorry yeah third one was swimming parallel towards us about f- 10 meters off the boat and so we could see it coming towards us same thing again i cast off the side led the fish by at least a meter and waited for the the paths to intercept quick twitch of the uh, shrimp pattern I had on and yeah I was connected it came straight for the boat underneath the boat and round the power pole so I had to jump out of the boat feed the rod through underneath the boat through the power pole is and um, and managed to uh, keep it connected and and then yeah landed the perm and I think it wasn't even 11 o'clock so yeah grand slam done 11 a.m and I got kicked out the boat after that <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. my fun done. For You've the reached day. the pinnacle. Yeah. You know, now piss off. Let someone else catch a fish. Well, yeah, it was it was Dizzy's um, Dizzy's trip as well. Um, so yeah, I ended up wading the bank and um, actually catching quite a f- uh, a few more bones. Just um, going back to that permit though, I reckon it's uh, it's great and it really says something about that species of fish that 
everyone who's got a permit story, it's always been, oh, I had to get in the water and, you know, swim underneath the power pole and untangle it or, you know, I got a knot in my fly line and went through the guides and, the, you know, <laughs> there's always a story like that. Like, it's just, it is chaos. Yeah, you know? it is. I, I've never really, we, more often than not, you hear about the fish that was almost lost rather than, oh, it just all went to plan. You know, uh, actually, there's a couple of people on social media where it might just always go to plan, but you know, yeah. they're much much better fly fishermen than us, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, that's it. Um, there was a lot of shots on perm for everyone on the trip. Um, uh, that day, uh, further on, and yeah, permit just playing the typical permit game. Um, you know, you can do everything 100 percent right, and you still won't get an eat. How many permit do you reckon you were saying per day? Um, me personally, I probably saw in between two and four every day, but the guides who had much better eyes than me, I think one day said he saw 12. Yep. And, um, how much time are you actually spending on perms though? Um, well, pretty much the hunt, well, the game for a couple of days was all permit, but then you, you don't see a perm and there's just hundreds of bones everywhere. So you catch bones while you're waiting for a perm. Mm. Um, and it worked quite well, really. We never were like hooked up to a bone, but to a bone when a perm was swimming past. We always were kind of like, "Oh, yep, that's a fish. I don't know what it is. Have a cast at it. Oh, yeah, it's coming for it. Yes, it's a permit. Uh, oh, it swam away." Mm. Um, so yeah, we saw a lot of permit, and the guides say that they're not always there. Mm. Um, I don't know if they move offshore or they go into deeper water or what they do other times of the year, but um, they just don't reckon that they always see them. Yeah, right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've heard a similar thing about the bonefish too. In chatting with uh, Nick Raygart the other day, he did a trip to Cocos early days in July and couldn't find a bonefish to save himself. So it's fascinating how these fisheries and how dynamic they are and, you know, going at the right time of year is just fundamental and almost sadly... You know, the the season seems to fall uh, during our summer period when the trout fishing's at its best That's down it. south. Yeah. Um, you've kind of got to be distracted by some saltwater flats fishing at Cocos. Yeah, November to kind of February, uh, that four-month window, I think, is, is the golden ticket um, with the winds, uh, the water temp and, and fish numbers. Um, but, yeah, Jesus Christ, um, every inch of water I looked at had bones. You know, mm. you, you would have been hard-pressed not to find a bone. Mm. Um, some flats more than others. Um, some of the nicer wading flats, and when I say that, I mean, you know, sand as hard as concrete, uh, uh, shallower, crystal clear water. They um, maybe didn't hold as many bones as the maybe the muddier sections that were harder wading, six to 12 inches of mud um, with lots of more food, wormholes and stuff in there. Um, but yeah, you know, it's quite diverse actually, the bottom. A lot of dead coral in the lagoon itself, obviously million-year-old or however old coral that has obviously died with rising water temperatures. You can just tell that, you know, that place looked very different a long time ago. You can tell that that place has evolved over time and this is what we, we've got now. Did you find live coral as well as dead coral? Outside of the lagoon, yes. Uh, yeah. um, so the lagoon, the temperature's way too hot to support coral and it's all dead. Uh, and you can see it all um, cl- pretty clearly that it's dead and it's been dead a long, 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 long time. time. Okay. Um, on the outside uh, where the surf beaches are and around the atoll, yeah, plenty of live coral um, and you get stuff like your bump head trevally that uh, is believed that yep. that's what they eat. Right. Interesting. 
It is a coral, I think, that forms the actual island, doesn't it? Well, they, they're old volcanoes, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a that are just slowly eroded away. Yeah, well, it's like the, the land is around the outside and the water's in the middle, which creates the atoll, um, and there's 27 islands in the... In the in the, it, but it's almost like kind of like a perfect circle. Yeah. So we used to a lot of trout fishing and spotting trout or not spotting trout. Yeah. So how did you find the polaroiding of the fish? Were they? I mean, it sounds like conditions were superb, sunny and clear water. Yeah. You're able to distinguish between the species. I mean, were you able to actually spot the fish and you know? Would tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I don't think a single fish was casted too blind. Right. Um, the guides are much better at IDing fish further out. Mm. I mean, a lot of the fish were as close as you know we're sitting now, mm. and absolutely I could see what they were mm. and what they are. The milkies and the bones, for me personally, sometimes like the only time I could tell the difference is when they swam away. Yep. Milkies swim way faster than the bones do, um, but they look very similar underwater. Mm. Um, Permit, I had to be close to tell if it was a permit oh, or not. Okay. But the GTs, they stand out like a sore thumb. Yeah. You can't, there's no denying those. Right. Uh, and the sharks too, the way that they look and move and swim in the water. Um, but yeah, like the milkies, the silver biddies and the bones, they were difficult to differ- differentiate sure. between. But yeah, um, yeah every yeah. single... I could see there was a fish in that area right. and I would make the So cast. you could actually see there was a fish there. A hundred percent, yeah. That's great. Yeah, everything was sightcast, and everything was so much closer than I was expecting. Um, my longest cast would have been no more than 30 metres, uh, and my shortest cast would have been minus four feet from the tip of the rod. <laughs> you know, like, we're talking at your, literally at your toes, these fish. My longest cast would be about 20 metres, I don't think I can cast 30 metres. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and that's that's probably something worth practicing. Do you think, Roscoe, before Abs- the trip? One hundred percent. I struggled with that. Like the thirty foot, um, yeah, yeah, the sixty foot cast, the thirty meter cast. That's a tricky one for most people. I think the the thirty feet cast um, uh, is probably the maximum that you're going to need. Um, but those short casts where you're not, you don't even have fly line out the rod tip that for those surfing bones. So you you're up, you're right up high in the high tide. So there's the beaches at the minimal. Plus, you've got the wind in your face. Plus, you've got a bone literally four feet from your feet, four foot from your feet. That's a difficult cast. Mm. Um, I think it would be easier if you maybe walked into the water, um, maybe 10 metres, and then cast back towards the land, but then you run the risk of spooking those fish. So that is tricky. Um, We did a lot of casting like across the beach. Mm -hmm. So um, getting above the fish and casting back down to them or being below them and casting up to them rather than casting directly at them from the beach. So they're pretty spooky in that, that skinny water? No, I wouldn't say that. They're definitely not spooky like trout are spooky. Um, they will spook for sometimes unknown reasons and sometimes they'll just spook on your fly. Like they'll see your fly or they hear your fly land uh, with a really heavy plop. They'll race straight to it. They see something they don't like and they're off, which is weird. Um, um, uh, some for, I had a theory for one day that I thought they didn't like rubber legs. So I cut all my rubber legs off and then I had, then, you know, then it was on and, um, but then I don't, you know, other days they would eat the fish with their flies with rubber legs. So yeah, not. Couldn't be ever sure why they would refuse some flies and eat others so willingly. What about GTs? How many did you see? Um, one day we just went looking for a GT for Dizzy and we did get him a really nice one. I think he had five shots and f- four eats and one landed. 
Um, and that was in the space for around a three to four hour period before we pushed right into the flats and went looking for something else. And, and, and during the tide, like what was happening at that, that it point? It was low going to high and it was on the lower end. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So was there a tidal preference? Um, I think for fishing pleasure, um, starting the morning on the low tide, so you're fishing the whole day of a, of a tidal push, was good because then that meant at your kind of 3, 3.30, you could boost back to the boat ramp without being hindered by low water. Um, so you could get back to the boat ramp quick and get into surfing bones. But apart from catching fish, I felt like we caught them at all levels of the tide. Okay. Definitely the bigger ones with the more water coming in on the flats, but there was little ones constantly on the water's edge at any tide. And the surfing bones were better at the higher tide but i never really saw really big bones surfing um but yeah i think if you were going to look at tides to go to cocos you'd always want a lower tide in the morning that does mean walking the skiff over some flats to get to it to push right in um but that does mean on your exit you're not you know you're not spending an hour and a half to get back to the boat ramp you're spending that time in the morning and probably fishing an incoming tide for the vast majority of the day, I think that would have a good result in the fishing overall too, you know. Yeah, I think the fishing was just sublime regardless of, of tide or there's just hardly any pressure there. And there's so much water and so many different places you can go out into the blue water and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it definitely the, the, the water push was seemed to be the best tide. Sounds like the place is really, given the quality of the fishing, quite underdeveloped. Yes, um, I, I think so too. I, I, I think it is a very difficult place to, to develop. Um, you know, it, there's only two islands that, ha- that have people in there, but um, you really truly feel that these fish have never seen flies and that the pressure is, is non-existent there. Sure, yeah. Like it's, yeah, obviously a pretty big fishable area. You know, I, with, I think I Googled there's about 600 permanent residents um, on the group of islands, which which isn't no people, you know, like it's amazing how with 600 people, how that can actually make a dent in fish populations. But clearly whatever they're catching and eating yep. is something well outside. Well, there's hardly any targets. boats. Yep. Um, so there's hardly any boats on the two islands. Difficult to get a boat there. And uh, don't quote me on this, but you can't have anything on finance on that island. It's a bit of a like a, like, I don't know, maybe people have taken, uh, you know, merchandise there in the past that has owed money on but the banks can't find you there or something so they just don't let that type of stuff on the island it's probably just the risks yeah where it is and the cyclones and all the rest of it so no insurance no no um no finance on anything so there's hardly any boats there so the like when ross caton goes to get a loan you know there's just too (laughs) many risks involved (laughs) no absolutely (laughs) he's got too many too too many expensive habits that's it (laughs) um so yeah, there was only a couple of local guys that had boats that we did see on some of the same flats that we fished. Um, one of the guys runs a bit of an operation there called Chasing Tails. We met him, really nice guy. But yeah, you know, like a real bombed out tinny um, and that's the type of thing they get around on and, and they probably can't get that tinny out on, on all the weather. Um, even a little bit of ripple would probably put that thing, you know, it, safely in the marina um so yeah some of those other islands are pretty untouched but you fish on uh west island uh there's a bit of learnt behavior from sharks for sure uh, i never lost a bonefish um on the line to a shark but we weren't fishing those really sharky spots we'd moved right away from them and um yeah there, there are uh less seem to be less fish around those populated islands um 
Yeah, so the the let's just talk a bit about the the operation that you were with there. It, you know, this one is new. You know, uh, so we're talking about a, a gentleman by the name of Nick Sheriff. He runs a company called Hello Backing. Um, if you do want to book in on any of this these Cocos trips, obviously um, you can book it through the Fly Fisher. You can chat to Ross, uh, myself, or Max, and we can steer you in the the right direction. Um, but Nick, he, you know, it, the whole thing's pretty green, isn't it? Right. So he's gone and spent a, a shitload of money on the yeah. two best boats you can buy for an area like that mm-hmm. um and the the maverick skiff for the skinny water has really opened up the fishing so whatever reports you've heard about cocos in the last 10 years i think are almost irrelevant yeah because agree. what's happening now is or these, you know, that new areas are being opened up as a result of, well, some very motivated fishing guides in the form of Connor and Cooper, yep. um, and these skiffs that are allowing them to explore these areas that have otherwise been untapped. Um, so it's exciting. It's super exciting, you know, um, and a package of this level of quality uh, at the price that they're asking, I think, is just a bargain. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it amazes me that there's any availability <laughs> to, yeah, to no. go there, given you know the quality and the, and the cost. So it's exciting. Um, it's Australia. It's it's bonefish. It's permit. It's giant trevally. Yeah. Um, so if you can get your ass there, then then do so. Um, and I'll be there at the end of January. So I'm I'm keen and raring to go, and for good reason. No, I think, I think you're dead right. And I think if someone that hasn't been there has told you something that, y- y- you know, yeah, something that might not be true, um, uh, you know, about sharks being bad or, or, or population of fish, then look, just come and talk to us, see the pictures, read the article, and, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, like... Like anywhere, I'm sure you can have a good and a bad trip, um, but it, it sounds like uh, certainly the, the, the fishery is is not the issue with Cocos. No. Uh, and I think to date it's probably just been the, the infrastructure available to you to make the most of it. Um, and thanks to the crew at Hello Backing, that's all changed. So uh, an, an unbelievably good opportunity. Do uh, you reckon you'll ever go back, Roscoe? If I can uh, manage to host another trip uh, in 12 months' time, I would do what I'd go there, you know, Whatever, whatever I could do to get there, I'd go there again. And um, just to mention on that, so the four clients or the three clients that uh, ended up going with us in November, all three of them have rebooked. Um, always a good sign. Yeah, always a good sign. <laughs> and one guy stayed another week. Dizzy stayed another week because he had such a ball. Um, so I, I think that speaks for itself. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, going back to... Um, uh, so a day uh, on on the skiff. Um, so lunch we um, uh, we stopped um, in some sh- found a bit of shady water and stopped for lunch. And that consists of uh, local uh, food from uh, the Malays. It was basically rice and no- rice or noodles and chicken every day, but absolutely delicious. Like some of the best chicken curries, the best noodle stir fries, uh, the best kind of flavored rice i've ever had in my life it was incredible and the the sponges the like victoria <laughs> style like you know victoria sponge style cakes that they make is incredible with the very limited if, if the fishing's not enough to get you to cocos yeah, go for the sponge cake yeah, that's it. <laughs> the victoria secret sponges yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the the food was uh, sublime and a um, couple of restaurants on the island too uh, that do buffets uh, and pizzas which was which was great as well but yeah we usually um, kind of called it by about that 3 30 um, time to get back to the boat ramp in time to always have a look for surfing bones and we found them every day and gin and tonic when you get back Absolutely, yeah. The island is not short of booze. Uh, don't need to rush. Uh, or alcoholics, I presume. Yeah, or alcoholics. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a story that maybe shouldn't be said for the podcast, but uh, basically every day we were the only people launching boats. Like I said, there's hardly any boats on the island. And uh, one day we got back to the boat ramp. It's a very casual, uh, relaxed place, Cocos. And uh, a guy had parked his car in front of the trailer, so we couldn't get the uh, boat out. But anyway, everybody leaves their keys in their cars at Cocos. Uh, I don't even think the keys come out. They're, they're rusted in there from the salt water. No one ever takes a key out of the car. Anyway, I hop in uh, the car and had to, you know, shovel my way through plenty empty bottles to, to get in there. But, um, yeah, the, the cars are... Uh, I've got a story actually. One of the guys on another boat had come to Cocos and they, uh, they, he was told that there was a minivan left for him with the keys uh, in there and he could just go and help himself and, and do what he needed to do on the island. Anyway, he proceeded to the first minivan he saw uh, of about four on the island and guess what? It had the keys in the ignition and he drove that one around all day and they were looking for the van but it wasn't the one for him. <laughs> so... <laughs> you yeah. just flogged old mate's van Yeah that's it But there's nowhere to go <laughs> There's two roads Yeah that's yeah. it That's No one's worried Because you can't go anywhere There's only about 60 people um, That really inhabit uh, West Island That's where the tarmac is And then yeah About five, six hundred on, on Home Island Wow We did go to Home Island For the day as well Which was good Sounds like paradise Yeah it really was yeah, the beaches, like, they, they actually do look like the best beaches in Australia. I think Direction Island did win best beach in the world. Oh, well, that's yeah. a fair title. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like the backdrop of catching bonefish in that kind of, you know, environment just looks uh, very positive. I don't think it's natural, though. A lot of those, uh, I think um, uh, Cooper did mention that, but the coconut palms are all planted. There was native figs there, which were all cut down to make way for coconuts. So it's not a natural landscape, but um, it's a beautiful one. Yeah. Nice. Um, should we touch a bit on the gear? Yeah. Let's do it. Um, yeah, I mean, bonefish are bonefish the world over. They are. Um, what did you take and, and use on... On the bones. Uh, well, I took a one of our Orvis Premium Saltwater Predator outfits in an eight weight with the Hydros matching Hydros reel and the Bonefish SA Bonefish floating line. Um, was great. It was definitely great for uh, the casting a little bit further. For those close in bones, I'd probably, if I had my time again, I'd probably take a Grand Slam line, just a little bit of a shorter, more aggressive head um on that line and i think that'd be cl- better for closer work um but that bonefish line's great for those kind of 30 feet casts yeah um, cool and yeah everything worked for flawlessly yeah um and you use the same outfit on the permit or yeah absolutely same outfit on the permit being that it's such the whole thing is so shallow and we're kind of half a k of flats in every direction, more than that, one and a half Ks, uh, the fish don't really have anywhere to go. So you can stop them pretty quick on those flats. So taking big heavy rods uh, isn't necessary. And that big GT was caught on a 10 weight. Um, look, obviously, ideally, the 12, you know, get the fish, keep the fish a bit greener, get it in a bit quicker, 
Um, but yeah, uh, uh, an eight and a ten. If you were just going to take two rods and you, you would, you're daunted by a twelve weight, was, was all you'd need really, unless you wanted to do the blue water stuff. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The twelve weight would really open that that stuff up for tuna. And but yeah. is a wahoo out there? Too? Yeah, wahoo. So yeah. Um, there was a doggy uh, caught on fly, and Nick was spooled. Uh, lost a fly line to that fish. I think that that is going to be tricky in that deep water. The shelf drops off so quickly there. Um, but yeah, sails and the wahoo are very uh, accessible fly targets there. Unreal. Yeah, that that'll be an area of that that fishery that, to be explored as well. I guess that hundred percent. No stuff. one's doing that. Yeah, there. no one's doing much there. Like, there's a couple of organisations that have started in the last twelve months, but no one's got. No one's done what Nick's done. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that it, it's quite expensive to fly there will probably deter quite a lot of the, the you know, the fridge fillers. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's not a, yeah, it's it's not a destination that you go if you don't absolutely froth on fishing. Yeah, and if you want the best fishing of your life, then that's definitely up there as one of the places to go. Yeah, unreal. Um, but I did actually sit down with uh, Connor and we had a good chat about all things gear. So um, maybe we'll uh, have a chat to him quickly. So we're just sitting in the Sportsman, uh, one of the new boats uh, at Cocos Keeling. I'm sitting here with Connor, um, one of the guides at the Hello Backing Charters Lodge. And we're just going to have a quick chat about what you might need to take on a trip like this. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure for having me. I appreciate it. No problem at all. So we've been catching bones in ankle deep water and up to waist deep water. Um, you think that, what would you recommend kind of rod and, and line-wise for that type of fishing? Yeah. So... For the bones, pretty much anything between eight and a ten. Obviously, going to have to be dealing with a bit of wind as well here. Yeah, that's um, what I have noticed. The wind, yeah, you know, punching into the wind can be pretty difficult. Yeah, definitely. So because of that, you probably want to be upsizing your gear a little bit, just to um, sort of negate that. Um, and you're generally fishing a little bit heavy here as well. So obviously, people would have heard um, about the sharks and fishing a little bit heavy in terms of upsizing your leader and that sort of thing as well. Um, and just having a, a 9 or a 10 with a little bit more balls behind it, um, being able to pull on those bigger bones as well is pretty handy. Yeah, and um, especially punching into the wind, I think it's a bit of a more aggressive fly line, which is not your typical for, for bone fish fishing here, um, just seems to cut through a bit of that chop and, and get down a bit faster. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, cool. And um, you mentioned the sharks there. We haven't really had too much of an issue, and I think that's because you guys have got it pretty figured out, and um, you, you know this fishery quite well. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, we're, we're seeing them every day, um, and there's a few sort of, I suppose, tactics that you can implement to, I suppose, av avoid them as best you can. Um, by nature, you're still going to lose fish every now and then, but definitely the amount that we're losing over the last few weeks has been well, we've minimal. Lost, yeah, yeah, me and Dizzy, we've lost none on the line, no fish on the line whatsoever yeah. over the yeah. last three days. And how many fish would you say we've, we've had? Plenty. Yeah, heaps. Yeah, um, yeah we've caught a few. Um, a few tactics even just, obviously, as I said, we're fishing pretty heavy, um, trying to cut the fight time pretty short. Obviously, if try not to handle all fish. You know, if you want a quick happy snap, then... Yeah, all mains go for it. Otherwise, pretty much every fishes fly out quickly and release quickly. And then also having nets as well. So we're sort of netting them pretty early in the fight. Yep. Um, I'm trying to keep sort of the handling as... Well, you're also moving away from the more... Hev like, it's not fished heavily, this island at all, but you're moving away from more inhabited areas, aren't you? Definitely. And that's the, uh, I suppose, the, the positive of the boat. Um, and you can also boost around to different areas a little bit quicker as well. 
Obviously, if you're fishing in an area land-based and you do have the sharks around you, they're pretty hard to escape. You pretty much got to walk a couple hundred metres to get out of the way and enter the water somewhere else. Yep. Where the boat, you can, all right, we've got a few sharks around us, pull the pick, boost to somewhere else, and then start catching them again. So the, um, just talk about the boats um, that we have on offer here and, and what they're good for. Yep. So two pretty specky boats. Uh, what we used today was the 17-foot Maverick, um, which is our flats boat. Um, electric on the front, power pole, and a 70-horsepower Yami. Um, that thing's a little weapon. Um, really fun to drive, really fun to fish out of. Um, and that's our little... Floats yeah, in a mill pond. Yeah. Yeah, super stealthy. It floats and bugger all, so we can, you know, push up into some really shallow areas. And, and the polling uh, platform. Yeah. yeah. Got the polling platform as well. Um, you know, if it is super glassy or, you know, the conditions suit that better, then that's always an option. Um, for the moment, I'm having a good time just living off the electric, dropping the power pole when I need to. Yeah, it was, works um, really well. Yeah, yeah. We've got a few fish out of, obviously. Um, it's fishing really well for bones. Yeah. Got a good G out of it today, and um, the lads have got a few Gs and perms out of it too. And then the big sportsman, the offshore weapon. Yep. So the 19-footer, um, 130 yummy on it. Um, and this is sort of our um, sports fishing boat, obviously. Yeah. We've also used it as a bit of a mothership. So <clears throat> with the last set of clients, we'd pile us all in it surveyed for five people so we can take a you know me and coops as the skippers and three punters boost into an area leave the boat hop out and wade for a few hours and then come back to the boat leave all the gear food and water and all that sort of stuff in the boat yeah handy piece of uh, gear to have um just going back to what gear you might need for for the fish um so we've covered bones pretty well what about perms i'll be running the exact same stuff so <clears throat> you will see a few permit um and I'd just be treating them um, like a bonefish, really. So um, just be throwing your bonefish fly at them on the same rod, um, same setup. I wouldn't be overcomplicating it too much. I think you'd end up just wasting a little bit of time and probably missing your chances that way. And so, leader um, construction? Yeah, anything, I mean, from, from 16 up to 25 probably is your tippet. Um, personal preference with. I mean, the one we got the other day was on 25 tippet, so, you know, I definitely don't see a, a point in going super-duper small if you don't have to. No, I think the one I got um, um, was on a 16-pounder. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be sweet. Um, yeah, just anything. Yep, yeah, I reckon the Magic 20, heavier. personally. Yeah, yeah personally, yeah. I'd be going the Magic 20. And the same with the bones? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And then, obviously, um, we did get a Monster GT uh, to the boat today um, after a bit of a lengthy fight, and I think we were all pretty stoked. What about GT fishing? Yeah. Good old Jays. Um, well, that one today was actually on a 10 weight, which, look. Probably a bit light. Yeah, it, it probably is for those sort of fish. Like, as you, you know, we did see a, a few bigger ones today, and um, Dizzy actually put a fly in a, a pretty big one that um, just didn't um, eat the hook right, but that's all right. Um, 12 weight probably would be ideal, um, provided that, you know, you can cast, use one yeah. effectively. If you can't cast it, then it really isn't much of a point. Um, but I'd, but yeah, be fishing your 12. Um, or just at least have it ready to go. I think we got lucky, you know, um, you're an awesome skipper, you control that nav really well and you were able to chase down that G and that was um, probably, uh, you know, 50% of the reason why we managed to get that fish in. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just good having that little bit of a platform as well that you can spot them at a reasonable difference and that sort of allows you with enough time to, you know, A, put the bone rod down um, and also get that other rod ready to go, stripped off, so you can at least you can get a, a decent 40, sort of 50 foot cast to it. Um, as soon as you're starting to have rush shots that are 20, 30 feet from the boat, it's 
yeah, generally not going to end well. Yeah, that's something I will mention. Um, and I, <coughs> I have read a few articles uh, in the magazines about Cocos, and a lot of people are surprised about how short the casts are. And most people, I see them practice your, your grass casting, when you're casting in our laneway, everyone's trying to cast as far as they can. Here, that's not the case, is it? No, generally not. Um, you can have instances where that's nice, but chances are it's usually windy here, it's generally cloudy, um, and that all means it's a lot of sort of tight um, knit fishing almost. And it's got to be fucking accurate, right? Accurate and quick. So I think it's not so bad when you land base, obviously, because you're stationary and you're just really just watching what the fish is doing. But particularly, say, if you're drifting from the Maverick, for example, the whole time that you're casting to that fish, the boat's moving as well. So being able to get that short, you know, 30-foot cast in quickly, because by the time that you've seen the fish and the flies hit the water, you might have moved five feet and it might have moved five feet. So yeah. just trying to be quick and accurate. Um, and, uh, yeah, that way you'll, you'll definitely catch more yeah, fish. It's got to be a one and done, really, doesn't it? Your false cast and then you drop that fly, if you, if you, can, if you can do it. Yeah, that's it. Um, what about weighting the flats? What gear do you need for that? What's a really important piece of gear? Without a doubt, a good set of shoes. I reckon if you're, if you're without it, man, it bloody sucks. So out of all the gear that you've got to sort of take to these destinations and on these trips um, and that sort of thing, if you're going to lash out on anything, it'd be footwear for me. Um, something with a hard sole is comfortable, something that you're not going to blister in because as soon as you start blistering, chafing, getting burnt, your, your trip sucks. So, yeah, that's um, it. trying to yeah, prevent that sort of stuff and the fishing will sort of take care of itself, I reckon. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen a lot of fish a little bit far out on, or, you know, the boat's moving, so we've power poled down, got out the boat and we've waded to them. And sometimes you're in kind of, it, it, I wouldn't call it mud, but it kind of feels like mud. Yeah, sort of like a soft sediment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then other times you're on really sharp kind of jaggedy reef. 100%. So you need to have all bases covered, I guess. And if you've got a really good pair of footwear, then you can uh, cover all that. The sun's pretty brutal here. It's not definitely not the hottest destination on earth, but um, it's brutal sun, so cover up or, or sunscreen. Yeah, hey? 100%. Oh, whatever you like to run, you know, whether it be buff or sunscreen or... You know, a bit of both. That's, that's a little bit more of a personal preference thing, I reckon. But lightweight gear, because it is hot. Yeah, 100%. And uh, the water's sort of 28 degrees at the moment too, so you can jump in, have a bit of a swim, and then pop out and you cool down. Yeah, awesome. Any other um, and bits and pieces you might like to add to the listeners? Yeah, we're well, sort of covered clothing. I mean, <clears throat> on that, if I'm waiting, I generally run long pants as well. It just stops the amount of um, sand and shit that actually gets into your um, shoes. It's always a pain in the ass taking your shoes on and off um, and cleaning them out that way. Um, probably the only other thing, I mean, species-wise, obviously, there's a couple of others, um, you know, triggers and bumpies and that sort of stuff of which I'd be using the same sort of gear, 10 weight would be sweet, um, and really the only difference there is maybe mixing up your flies a bit. Yeah, um, cool. And obviously there is the opportunity, um, if you that way inclined, to chase some bills. Yeah, well, there is, and we've just started to sort of use the sportsman for that now. We had a couple of days, um, or in fact, two, two last days that you were out with Cooper, I was out with Nick looking for bills. Um, and look, we raised a couple, um, stuffed up a couple of shots as well, trying to get them on the fly. So still um, a bit of time to work getting them figured out. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, that's, as I said, that's the first couple of days that we've done. It's cool that we've we've seen fish. So look, they exist. Um, but I mean, yesterday, for example, we raised one fish at ten o'clock. Super hot on the taser. We should have caught him, um, but just 
but just didn't uh, didn't get the eight, and then I didn't see fish for the rest of the day. So look, if we're having sort of four and five fish days, I, th I think it'd be a little bit more of a guarantee. But yeah, I think maybe you've, you've had your thirty-five bone days. You've caught a couple of good good bones. Maybe you've caught a permit or two in in the first couple of days here, um, and and you're that way inclined, and that's something you want to do. Maybe that would be an option as well um, um, to fill a to fill a day if you wanted to do something different. Yeah, the flats fishing. Um, I, I'd say you guys have got it fairly well figured out i mean how many perm um did we see today yeah plenty um in terms of legitimate shots at fish you know probably you know, yeah. yeah something like that and then plenty of others that are sort of moving off in the distance or you know spooking and that sort of thing just permit being permit and but, um, bones plenty yeah it's um, look, stock full of the yeah, bones yeah if you if you wanted to catch you know those sort of numbers of bones in a day 30 fish for example you definitely could do it but your average size is going to be probably around that two to four pound with a few bigger ones yeah what we've been doing the last few days is sort of keeping our numbers low and really focusing on those bigger ones got unlucky with a couple today like you hooked one i reckon would have been up in that sort of eight nine pound range it's uh, got wrapped around the minkota yeah good old minkota that's, that um, stuff happens yeah you love and you hate it but um yeah there's definitely your numbers will go down at the end of the day you might only catch a few fish but for me, it's worth it. Yeah, you're not wasting time playing fish that are yeah, little. And um, I guess finally, let's just have a little chat about flies. What flies do you like here? Yep. So my box will pretty much consist of um, you know, shrimp and gotchas for your bones. So anything sort of around that size. I say it's size two gamma up to a one o. Um, in B chain and brass, really. That'd have you pretty much covered for your. Yeah, your perms as well. Yeah, so don't come um, here with, you know, those size fours and sixes and nah. stuff like that. But nah. It's too small, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, obviously, we've had a lot of C um, CXI guys over the last couple of weeks. And um, luckily, they've had a bit of bigger stuff in their box. But you're right, it does consist of those size fours, six and eights, which definitely would get eaten here. Um, but you're generally after those bigger fish. And the little fish will eat a big fly too. Um, obviously, your permit and triggers as well will eating that sort of stuff so trying to find something that you're confident casting to a bone a trigger and a permit is probably the way to go yep um saves you doing fly changes sort of on the water yeah i've um, seen you've got a lot of those keeled flies um in your in your box you like yeah. those yeah um i've got a real good mate dill tomlinson who uh ties those up um just keeled nicely so even a light fly will sink hook point up or at least be on the bottom hook point up um i just find you get a little bit better um, hook up right that way uh, and you're not snagging up on the bottom obviously as well yeah awesome well look thanks for your time and we're sitting here in the sportsman and uh i think it's time for a beer and and uh Absolutely. yeah thanks very much and celebrate a good day thanks for sitting down with us there connor and uh talking a little bit about gear um and uh, uh hopefully i'll catch up with you next time i go Let's just talk a little bit about flies, Roscoe. What yep. um, what flies were your best best sort of flies for the trip on the bonefish? So I had maybe half a dozen uh, size two gotchas that was just a tan Arctic fox for a tail, um, bonefish diamond braid for the body wraps, and then um, a, a wing consist of Arctic fox again. So a super simple fly. I tied some with tungsten, some with dumbbell eyes, and that was probably one of the more... Uh, one of the flies that I was looking for to tie on more than anything else. That seemed, that seemed to be worked really well for a lot of the smaller bonefish. The bigger bonefish liked like a size 2 to 1 to 1.0 shrimp pattern. Orange and tan 
some sort of combination of orange and tan worked really, really well. Um, and if I went there again, I'd probably take uh, a dozen of those gotchas that I tie up and probably 20 to 30 uh, shrimps from size 4 to one o. Yeah, cool. And what about different weights in the fly, given the, the fishing situation? Um, I'd like – I prefer the smaller weights, but tungsten. Yeah. So um, less splash, less disturbance in the water. That tungsten just seems to cut through and just drop to the bottom so fast. Um, where if you had that same weight out of brass, it would be a big weight that would cause quite a disturbance on the water. So I'd go tungsten all the way. Um, uh, some of the four mil – the medium ones, that was the perfect size. And I'd even lead-wrapped a few uh, shanks as well just to get a little bit more weight in there. Um, I don't think you could really go too heavy. Yeah, so it was just fundamental in getting the fly down in front of the fish. Absolutely. Those bonefish, those permit, they're looking down. Yes, you can get mid-water eats. You're not getting top-water eats, but you could get a mid-water eat, but really you just want it on the bottom. That's where they want it. Yeah, cool. And the... Um, I remember you saying when you got back, you know, the crabs maybe just didn't work as well as you'd hoped. Yeah, like uh, when we went to Albany, everything ate a flexo hay. Like mm. it didn't have to be in the water long and something had picked a flexo crab up. I fished a flexo for a good half a morning for like a couple of measly hits. It just, and then I switched back to like one of those um, tan gotchas and it was like these fish were just making a beeline for the fly. And I think they're maybe more used to eating um, shrimp prawns and worms than they are eating crabs there's definitely crabs there but we didn't see big numbers of that small sized crab there was a lot of bigger crabs there on the island yeah um any item of gear that you you took that maybe you thought oh well that was a bit unnecessary or maybe something that you didn't take that you thought oh shit i wish i had that um i think i took the the sims air vent shoe which was perfect for the days that we spent 50 50 waiting and boat but i think um some of the more waiting days i think like the a more dedicated waiting boot probably would have been a good option i didn't need it i didn't feel like i, I struggled without it but um i think if if you have the room and your luggage and you wanted to protect your feet and you maybe did an eight-day trip, that would probably be um, a better option to, to take. The 12-weight never even got put together. Um, you know, we might have done a day offshore, um, but, yeah, the, the 10 and the 8 saw, uh, you know, 90, well, saw 100% of the fishing. Yeah. I reckon, you know, GTs are a fish that's hard to subdue at the best of times. So, if, if you know, given the option... If I'm casting to a GT, I want as much rod as I can get, and the 12 would be it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, if you went there seriously on GTs... Take the 12, 100%. Load up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just enough tippet and leaders. I think I took a... I took enough for a litre a day, and just the amount of fish... Uh, I popped quite a lot of fish off, just because I had, you know... Six inches of fly line out the tip of my rod, and then you know a sixteen, uh, you know quite a long leader at minimum of kind of twelve foot leaders, and you just don't have enough give in the outfit to do a really heavy handed strip strike. You've got to be quite gentle with them, um, and I lost a lot of fish. If you're talking 15, 20, 30 feet away, mate, you can wrench on that line because you've got all that electricity electricity in the line. Um, but yeah, and that was that was a big learning curve for me actually. Those shorter uh, takes, they're taking them right at your feet, especially the GTs too. You've got to be a bit more gentle when they're that close. Mm. Um, so I think enough leaders uh, for probably two a day, I would recommend, just because if you're, you're not experienced enough in that kind of close quarters of fishing, you could pop a lot of flies and your leader soon gets pretty quick when you've, uh, you know, you've had to tie a few flies on. 
Cool. Um, yeah, anything else we need to know about flies or that, that pretty much sums it up? I think we've covered everything. Um, I think, you know, you can't give everyone all your secrets. You've got to go there and figure a bit out for yourself. Um, uh, I think a nice thing about the island was that we there was very little in the way of biting, stinging insects. So um, uh, bug stopper apparel or, or, or bug spray wasn't necessarily needed, but you definitely wanted to cover up from the sun. Um, so uh, the Solarflex hoodies, I think all, all of us every day were, were in those and they just were golden out there. Uh, a good hat um, I'd probably recommend some a good pair of gloves um, especially the guide gloves from Sims being that they've got the leather palm those you know we caught a lot of fish and a lot of those fish uh, are quite spiky especially the G- the tails on the GTs um, and uh, definitely worthwhile wearing a pair of gloves to protect your hands yeah, no, that's definitely a great tip. There's nothing worse than cutting your hand up on day one and then by, you know, day yeah. three you're in in pain. <laughs> yeah, well, that's happened to me on, like, every trip I've been on. So, And that's another thing, like, like good wading boots. Um, and I know that Connor did speak. He said, you know, if... When he when we chatted to him then he said if you you know you're going to spend your money on anywhere you want it on your boots because the last thing you want to do is step on an old piece of dead coral or a sharp coral or a broke broken glass on your first day and you've ruined your trip you know. Mm. Wow, you know, I mean, Coke is a tropical paradise with you know teeming with fish. It just sounds too good to be true, really, doesn't it? It was a wild trip, that's mm. for sure. Uh, Ma- Max Caruso, are you, are you any relation to Robinson Crusoe? Well, I could be if you ship me to Cocos Island. <laughs> yeah. I'd yeah. gladly stay there for a couple of years by myself. Oh, I could. I eating sponge cake. <laughs> yeah. The most delicious food. Um, yeah, no, it just yeah, everything about it just sounds so good, doesn't it? And uh, lawless society over there too, Roscoe, so you'd fit in. Yeah, that's it. No, there there are police on there. There's a couple of federal police on there, but um, yeah, and the biggest uh, border force ship uh, moored off there uh, I've ever seen. But um, no, it was it was good, and um, I, I wrote a little bit about um, a research vessel rocking up to the island, and uh, the crew had uh, come on on board, and we had a good night in the pub playing pool, and I think they had a pretty heated game of Jenga, <laughs> which was interesting, and quite a few uh, quite a few beers. But yeah, the next day we we stopped by the ship and uh, dropped off some fish, and got greeted with a bag of beers and oranges and apples and cheese wheels, and it was just fantastic. They were so welcoming. Unreal, yeah. It sounds like just that transient population and people that are that are there on holidays and probably in party mode a little bit as well. Well, that's it. I think anyone that's there, you know, they're there to have a good time. They're there to make friends. You know, they're there transiently. So, um, just a really good bunch of people. Everyone we met was in that same kind of mindset. You never were looking over your shoulder or anything. That you know, everyone's just there having. Being friendly and having a good time, so it was just an awesome experience. No, that's unreal, Roscoe. No, thanks for sitting down with us and, and talking a bit about your trip. At, no, it was you, you sitting down with me. I wanted to talk about this for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually taking bets uh, as to how long the, the Coco's experience will linger for. Yeah, yeah I reckon he'll it. be talking about it for another 12 months probably. Oh, easily. Until the next trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but um, if you are interested in booking a trip to Cocos, do get in touch with us. Um, happy to help. Um, it's the, what is it? The 22nd of December right now. So, uh, only a few days till Christmas. So if you are listening, um, we really do hope you have a very happy Christmas. Thanks for your support of the podcast and the fly fisher, uh, over the year. And, uh, we look forward to the next episode. Stay tuned. See ya. All the best.